specter is haunting the world. The specter of communism. I'm Tim. And I'm Em. And this is Spectre, a collaborative podcast produced by the Young Communist League with support from the Communist Party USA. The past year has seen a dramatic upswing in American labor activism. From Amazon to Starbucks, Google to New York Times, industries across the board are barreling towards unionization. More people striked in October 2021 than in all of 2020. After years of declining union membership, this sudden upsurge in activity is certainly uplifting, but also a bit perplexing. Why now? What's behind this passion and energy sweeping the nation's working class? Some see the disruption of the pandemic, especially the freedom of choice awarded to workers by stimulus relief, as a major part of this agitation. But there's more to the story than just COVID-19. Cooper Carraway is the head of AFL-CIO in South Dakota, and he's here to explain his thoughts on why all this is happening and what it means for socialist organizing in America. Cooper, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you both for having me, and thank you for all the work you put in in creating this podcast. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on. Um, so why don't we start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? I mean, you're head of the AFL-CIO in South Dakota, as you mentioned, um, kind of a big deal. Uh, how has your work been uh, been going this year? I mean, a lot of activity with unionizing, so I figure it's been quite busy. Yeah, there's activity uh, all over the place. Um, and, you know, South Dakota in particular. A lot of folks don't know, you know, pe- people sleep on South Dakota. But the, the uh, reality is that, you know, the AFL-CIO is separated into these regions, right? Uh, and that's how we organize ourselves. And so we have the central region, which reaches from South Dakota all the way over to Pennsylvania and down to Kansas and, and places like that. The AFL-CIO, uh, uh, South Dakota is the only state in the central region that has seen an increase uh, in union membership every year uh, in the uh, uh, in for the past three years. Only time that uh, it's the only state not pro-union states like Minnesota, like Illinois, like places like that, uh, they've all stayed steady or declined just a bit from some of the recent Supreme Court cases. But South Dakota, uh, the, the union organizing is going up, union membership is going up. Uh, and it's largely because there are young radical labor leaders uh, who are in uh, 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 decision-making positions uh, in the state. And that, that, that makes a great, uh, a great deal of difference. Um, but across the country, uh, as you folks alluded to in the intro, uh, we've seen a, a, a big increase in, in labor and, and, and worker activity, you know, worker activity that uh, a lot of times has been um, almost a, a bit separated from the traditional or establishment uh, labor movement, uh, the, the, the institutions of the labor movement. We've seen a lot more uh, seemingly spontaneous, seemingly independent uh, 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 worker organizing uh, across the country. And that, you know, that is, uh, uh, you know, in reference to Striketober, but also, you know, the rise of the kind of anti-work subreddit uh, and, you know, people quitting their jobs and these, you know, you know what I, I call them, you know, um, unofficial protected concerted activity. Uh, you know, these are unofficial strikes, uh, you know, and then uh, an independent, you know, worker action. You know, anytime a worker tells, uh, tells a, a, a boss uh, that, you know, so they refuse to be exploited, uh, even if it's over a, over a text message, uh, to me, that's labor activity and that's organized labor action. Uh, and so if you 
count that in, uh, then this is one of uh, the most dynamic periods uh, to be a, a part of our working class uh, and, and to, to look around and, and, and see uh, working people standing up in a way that is almost unparalleled uh, in human history, but it's at least unparalleled in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about like how you see those um, unofficial pieces fitting in. Obviously, we're going to get a little more into Striketober and things like that later on. But I also in like doing some research for this uh, episode was seeing how some people are calling just like the great resignation in general, a general strike and wanted to know your thoughts on what is the importance of thinking of it as that not thinking of it as that is it kind of just semantics or what? Yes, yeah, so it's not a general strike. Uh, I'll, I'll say that a general strike is a very specific sort of thing, you know, and, and uh, people are, are a little confused on people get excited. Right. And so it's not super, you know, it's not like an offense, you know, to get excited and to be a little hyperbolic or a little uh, uh, to misconstrue a, a, an event or something like that. It's not no one's committing any kind of offense, but it's not a general strike. You know, a general strike is a very specific thing um, where uh, workers in specific industries organized to shut down the state uh, or, or the government for, for a period of time until they meet their demands. Um, and so a general strike isn't even no one goes to work, right? And people think, oh, okay, every, every year, right, or at least every year of my adulthood, there's been, you know, some kind of Facebook event or a, a Twitter hashtag or something. Oh, on this day, everyone it's a general strike. No one go to work. No, no work, no school, this and that. But that's not uh, really what a general strike is. A general strike is, you know, specific uh, choke points uh, in the mechanisms of the state where folks shut down primarily transportation, primarily commerce uh, and things like that, where workers go on strike and shut those instruments of the state down so that the state cannot function in any way other than to negotiate with those workers uh, and, and attempt to meet their demands or or resign or step down uh, and be replaced by someone who's willing to meet the workers' demands. Um, and so it's a, it's not a general strike, but it is concerted labor activity uh, and it, it is it is worker action. Um, and that's important. And it's important to, you know, it, it really clarifies what I've said about labor the whole time. And it, that is that the best union organizer uh, in history is a bad boss. The best union organizer you can hope for is a bad boss because a bad boss creates the conditions under which workers organize. Uh, unionizing and organizing is very similar to like riots in the sense that an, an individual cannot create a riot. An individual can go into a community with the intent to starting a riot, with the intent to uh, um, uh, uh, creating a riot. But if the conditions are not right, a riot is not going to be created. People are not going to follow that person. People are not going to start throwing rocks and, and, and burning down buildings and things like that if the conditions are not right for that, no matter what, how persuasive this individual might be. The same is true for union organizing. No matter how persuasive and skilled a, a professional union organizer is, going into a workplace, that workplace will not be organized unless the conditions uh, are right for organizing. 
and no one does more to influence those conditions uh, than a really bad exploitative boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the pandemic has created um, these sort of two camps uh, and these, these two camps who claim victimhood and one uh, throughout the pandemic and one has a legitimate claim to victimhood and one does not. Uh, and what I mean by that is that both the bosses and the workers see themselves as victims of the pandemic. Um, and this is illustrated by uh, union contract negotiations we've seen since the pandemic, right? And so, uh, uh, for example, in my state, there is a pork plant uh, called the Smithfield Pork Processing Plant, uh, and it provides 10% of the pork product in the, uh, in the country. Uh, it's one of the major pork distributors in the country. It's heavily unionized, 90% union. It's mostly immigrant uh, and refugee workers. Uh, and um, for a time when the pandemic uh, first hit, it was the number one COVID-19 hotspot in the United States. And uh, that's significant because it was the only civilian workplace that was on the list of hotspots uh, in the United States. Everywhere else was a jail. A prison, uh, or I think you know maybe one aircraft carrier was on there. But uh, as far as civilian workplaces go, it was the only one on the list, and it was the number one hotspot. Um, and so, leading up to contract negotiations, uh, the bosses, uh, you know, made uh, flyers and banners, and all said, "Oh, heroes work here. You all are heroes. You all are essential. You know this and that." And then they get to the negotiation table expecting to be treated like they're essential and like they're heroes. Uh, and the company is uh, demanding concessions and not even listening to what the workers, you know, demands are and things like that. Uh, and this illustrates the uh, the the divide that the bosses believe themselves to be victims because they may have lost a bit of profit. They may have had to give the workers some paid time off. And now they see themselves as victims, regardless of what these workers have been through, actually having, uh, actually getting sick, actually having members of their community dying, their family members dying, them forced to come to work in unsafe working conditions uh, every day, uh, having to make that, that horrible decision that workers have to make all the time between uh, the health and safety and, and, and happiness of their families versus the financial security of their families uh, and things like this, horrible positions. Uh, but because the bosses uh, uh, had to sacrifice just a little bit of, of profit and have to give, you know, some time off and stuff like that. Now they see themselves as victims and restitution must be made to them, the victims. And so the, the workers ought to make concessions. Uh, and so w- that's, that's, that's where we're at is that you have these, uh, um, uh, two sides that, uh, that are, that are claiming this victimhood. And that's why you see both sides being more assertive. Uh, while workers are being more assertive, bosses are also being more assertive. You know, you see a lot in the, in the uh, some of the, the anti-work uh, kind of uh, people sharing uh, conversations with their bosses, right? And the bosses are taking oftentimes a hardline stance. It's your job to come in, you know, no matter what the condition, it's, it's your job to come in, it's your job to do this, it's your job to do that. Uh, and, you know, taking these hardline positions because they feel victimized. Um, and, uh that also shows how how uh, detached from reality uh, the bosses in this country have become. You know, the bosses and the politicians, basically everyone moving uh, or in charge of the mechanisms of the political and, and economic system in this country have become so detached from reality that it's very hard to even have a conversation uh, with them or, or, or a reasonable negotiation.
Yeah, and I've noticed in my own, like, uh, I guess, personal experiences in employment that this um, this detachment you're talking about is actually kind of harming these businesses. Like, they're so stubborn and stuck to this, um, I guess, old practice of the bosses making all the demands and the workers, you know, meeting meeting them where they want to be met. That uh, I've noticed a lot of businesses around here, um, including like a factory I worked at, they have just lost their workforce since there's, you know, higher wages and better opportunities. And they just will not raise their wages. They won't offer additional benefits. Um, You know, you just sort of get that old uh, adage that nobody wants to work anymore. That's sort of the perspective. But it's like, no, people are working. They're just not working for you. Um, But I want to pivot here. Uh, We've been mentioning a few times this uh, striketober, right? And this term has kind of taken on almost like, I guess, uh, mythological status, almost like in labor organizing in that um, everybody's heard of it. Um, People know it's a big deal. But I think a lot of people, myself included, aren't quite clear on what exactly happened and why, you know, why this is such like, a, I guess, milestone in labor history, why this month was um, why this month was so influential that it got its own name, you know, Striketober. Um, so I'm curious if you could maybe expand on that a little bit and tell us what happened in this month that uh, made it so prominent. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the reality is, is that if we think in a historical perspective, Striketober 2021 is going to be looked at as just a small blip, right? Uh, this is this is just the beginning of a mass uh, movement, uh, a mass working class movement. This is just kind of a, a, a you know a first little skirmish, you know, a first little flare up in a in a long struggle, um, uh, a long or, or a new period of struggle. Um, and so what we're seeing is, you know, we had we have strikes that some of the strikes are still going on. The warrior met uh, coal strike is still going on in Alabama. Uh, but many of the strikes were resolved. Uh, you know, uh, John Deere, Kellogg's, uh, these kind of major names, you know, where the workers were on strike nationally. Um, most of those uh, uh, folks were able to get their uh, um, uh, issues resolved. Um, but. The reason that Striketober happened and the reason that it's the beginning of a larger movement is because of the demographic shift in the workforce. And so if you look at millennial and Gen Z workers, uh, millennial and Gen Z workers are have the highest uh, favorability rating of labor unions in the history of this country. Uh, so millennial and Gen Z workers each are polling upwards of 70% in their approval rating of unions. Uh, and this is uh, higher than any generation uh, in the history of this country. Not only do they have a favorable view of unions, uh, but millennial and Gen Z workers have grown up their whole lives organizing and learning how to organize. Uh, so when I was in high school, um, I'm, a, I'm a millennial. I don't care what you say. I don't care what anyone else says. I'm only 31. I was born in 1990. I'm a millennial. Uh, Zoomers called me an elder millennial, but I will not accept such slander. Uh, <laughs> millennial, not elder, nothing. Uh, but um, uh, when I was in high school, uh, George W. Bush was president and he had just created ICE. George W. Bush created ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, as a, 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 the anti-immigrant arm of Homeland Security. 
And um, their strategy, uh, rather than building walls and concentration camps along the border, their strategy was to go to small towns and raid uh, employers, plants, factories, and stuff like that, that they believed uh, um, employed a bunch of uh, uh, immigrant workers and raid the employer. And then they would set up these paramilitary camps in these small, right outside these small towns, and then raid homes and raid plants. Um, and uh, that was the strategy of ICE. Uh, so um, that was happening when I was in high school and they ended up hitting our uh, small town in East Texas. Um, and um, uh, we organized a walkout. Uh, and, you know, we organized a walkout and said, we're not a student strike. We're not going back to school until ICE pick, uh, packs up their camp and leaves town. Um, and uh, high school students all over the country did that. Uh, in fact, you know, there were millions on, on May Day uh, around that time, there would be millions of people in the street fighting for immigration reform. And this was in direct response to George W. Bush's ICE um, policies. Uh, and uh, this, uh, 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 and so that's that's just an example of a high school experience that a lot of millennials had. Uh, but then if you go a little bit further, a lot of millennials and, and, and folks were involved in uh, the, the first campaign they were involved in was the uh, presidential election and primary uh, campaign of Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama was, you know, the, the most progressive person in the um, in, in the primary. He was he was Bernie. You know, he was talking about the uh, he was talking about universal health care. Uh, you know, he was talking about all the things that um, uh, folks wanted. Um, and so a lot of folks got involved in that. Uh, and then shortly after 2008, uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement happened, and that happened nationwide. So a lot of uh, young folks were involved in that. And then only a year or two after that is when the Black Lives Matter movement started with the, uh, where that first started was the murder of Trayvon Martin uh, in Florida. Uh, and that um, kicked off the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and then uh, you've had other things, uh, so on. So a lot of folks uh, came of age. Uh, they grew up throughout school, uh, throughout uh, middle school, high school, and, and, you know, early community college or college uh, organizing against immigration uh, raids, uh, against police brutality, against war in Iraq, uh, uh, against all these sorts of things. And so you have a generation uh, or two uh, who have learned that the best way to get your um, uh, needs addressed is through organizing, uh, organizing your community, organizing yourself. And now those folks have entered the workforce. Mm -hmm. uh, those folks have gone to work. Those folks are done with school. They've gotten jobs. They've been in their jobs for a little bit. Uh, and uh, because of their politics, because they're the most pro-union generation in history, they're joining their unions and in places where, um, in places where uh, there are no unions, they're organizing unions. Uh, and when they organize those unions, they're using an organizer uh, mindset. And so they're more willing to go on strike and they're more willing to take these organizing actions. And so what we're seeing is, is uh, uh, just the um, uh, 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 millennial and Gen Z organizers who have come of age entering the workforce and joining the labor movement. Uh, and that's why you're starting to see an upsurge in labor activity. Uh, and that's why you'll continue to see uh, an upsurge in labor activity. I really appreciate that perspective because I, I don't think I have heard people um, kind of like uh, relate Striketober specifically to that. What I've heard a lot 
more is relating it to um, COVID. And so I wanted to know, like, what are your thoughts on also like how COVID and like the stage of capitalism we're in these like historical conditions are also relating um, in while working with this like newer um, generation of organizers? Yeah, sure. So uh, like I said uh, previously, the uh, uh, unions don't get organized, people don't get organized, riots don't happen, none of those things happen without the conditions being right. Um, and everything adds to the conditions. And so another thing COVID did that folks sometimes don't talk about is that they exposed, COVID exposed the, I want to know how I, how I want to put this. So a lot has been made historically um, for 200 years about the um, brutality of the ruling class in the United States, the inhumanity, uh, the brutality, um, these, these sorts of things. Um, a thing that COVID did that exposed the vast majority of the population to was it exposed the incompetence of the ruling class. Um, how incompetent uh, they are at governing. And, you know, the fact that, you know, this ruling circle cannot even handle a basic health crisis, you know, in, in a way that, that many other places were able to handle much better. Um, you know, many, Vietnam, China, where it started, uh, those places were able to address uh, the, the, the needs of the people during the pandemic much better. Um, and the more that the people in the ruling class talked, the more they exposed their incompetence. So they're putting, you know, they were coming out and saying, um, it, it really exposed that they have a fundamental different view of life than workers do. And they place a different value on life that then workers, you know, the bosses have no understanding of the value of life. And you could tell that by the way that they talked and, and, you know, they would say things like, well, there's only a percentage, you know, only a small percentage of people die. Um, so it's not worth losing some money over that small percentage of people who are going to die. Um, and so they only know how to measure the value of life. Uh, by looking at a spreadsheet and a profit margin, um, you know, and, but workers, you know, we know that each life that was lost was invaluable uh, because each individual that we lost was part of something bigger. They were part of a collective and they were more than just a, a, a number on a, on a balance sheet, you know, and, and particularly our elder people who we lost. Um, our elders carry with them uh, generations worth of knowledge and experience and, and insight just for the fact that they've lived for so long and experienced so many different conditions and situations. Uh, you know, so not only, you know, if one elder in a community dies, not only is someone losing a parent and a grandparent and maybe a great grandparent, but, you know, someone else is losing likely a piano teacher. People are losing a fellow churchgoer. Uh, um, local businesses are losing a shopper, you know, these types of things. But the reality is uh, beyond all of that, 
one for every elder that died during COVID, it is the equivalent of a library full of first editions being burned down. And that is knowledge, uh, that is human knowledge and human experience that we as a collective human race do have lost. We do not have access to that knowledge or experience anymore. Um, we do not have, uh, and, and there is no way for us to recover it. We will never get it back. Um, and workers understood that. The workers understood that each life is, is precious. And that's why workers organized so hard uh, to, uh, to shut things down, uh, to take COVID uh, protocol seriously, to take COVID seriously and things like this, uh, while the bosses had no understanding. Um, and so um, COVID exposing the incompetence of the ruling class and of the bosses uh, emboldens workers, um, really emboldens workers and says, look, at the end of it, these guys are not special. These bosses, they're not special. They're not extraordinary. They're not in these positions because they're so much smarter or better than me. You know, they're in there because someone they knew put them in there. Uh, and you know they're not their 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 incompetence really uh, emboldened workers to strike against uh, these types of folks, and it'll continue to do that because there's going to be a continued opportunity for the bosses to expose their own incompetence, uh, and workers are starting to think differently. You know, and I'll, I'll give you an example of this: that that if if the three of us, uh, me and you, Tim and you, M, if we all. Uh, we're on a, on a, on a plane and we, uh, our plane crashed and we washed up on an island and it was us three and about, you know, 40 other survivors on this island. What is the first things we would do? The very first things we would do is uh, organize into a, a couple different groups. And one group would be in charge of finding and building shelter. Another group would be in charge of finding uh, and, and, and uh, finding food and gathering food and bringing it for everyone else. And then probably another group would be in charge of uh, uh, organizing some kind of distress signal, a, a smoke signal, or, you know, riding SOS and the driftwood or, you know, something like that. But in that, by, by sundown, by sundown, the three of us and our, our uh, fellow uh, deserted islanders have created a more humane system than the ruling class in this country has been able to create with infinite resources in 200 years. In 200 years, they haven't been able to find a way to house everybody. In 200 years, they haven't found a way to feed everybody. They haven't figured out how to do that. And people like us, regular workers, could figure it out by sundown. And the bosses are exposing their level of incompetence to saying, you know, uh, showing us and, and showing a new worker every day, a new worker is waking up in, in this country and deciding that the boss's level of incompetence, they're not able to govern um, uh, politically or economically in this country anymore. Uh, and that's why they're feeling more emboldened. And I think they'll continue to feel more emboldened, particularly as more Gen Z folks join the workforce. Uh, uh, they'll be, uh, the working class will be more emboldened to say that it ought to be us in charge of the political and economic system, rather than these incompetent, rich, spoiled trust fund kids who have been running this country for 250 years. Absolutely. And um, 
you know, I, I feel what was kind of a radicalizing moment for myself, at least, um, was that not only is the incompetence you you spoke about, um, but just the callousness that sort of occurred during this pandemic, um, the sort of shrugging off of, oh, they're elderly, they're disabled, they're sick. So, you know, it's fine that they died. You know, it's it's whatever. Um, I, it was it was just disturbing to me. And um, it wasn't necessarily surprising, but just the how rapidly this country wanted to pretend the pandemic was over, namely the ruling class of this country, and just move on from it at the cost of any human life, I think is kind of scary for all of us. It shows that if we are ever left vulnerable in the system, it will kill us very eagerly just to get us out of the way. So, uh, you know, further profits can be pursued. Um, so yeah, I think that's certainly, um, as you said, uh, a major reason that um, workers are banding together now is this insecurity is, is really impacting them. Um, with that in mind, I'm wondering, like, uh, for people who may be um, skeptical or uncertain of um, the intention of unions, um, and I'm, I'm not sure very many of those are listening to this podcast, but if they are, um, I'm just curious if you, if you could... Uh, I guess, clarify what sort of concrete gains are being made in this time? Like, what, um, what is it that workers are achieving at this moment that, that is protecting them against this pandemic that is, you know, securing them in the workplace? Yeah, for sure. Um, so if you look at the numbers of layoffs and particularly firings and layoffs without, a, uh, layoffs without pay and stuff like that, um, union workers were much more secure. Um, um, you know, I'll, I'll give an example. You know, when the when COVID first hit, I was the president of the Sioux Falls Labor Council, but I was also the union representative for all public employees in South Dakota. So I represented the workers of about 22 different cities and counties. Um, and so I was their lead representative and their lead negotiator. Um, because we had a union and a fighting union and a militant union, um, many while many non-union cities were laying off uh, people who dealt with the public, for example, a lot of libraries were closed, right? Um, and uh, other places were closed um, and, and a librarian can't really work from home. So a lot of librarians across the country were getting laid off um, or, or terminated or, or this or that. Uh, but because we had a union, um, you know, we were able to uh, sit down and say, look, you're not gonna make any decisions uh, unilaterally. Um, the, uh, the union's gonna be involved, the workers are gonna be involved. And while the libraries closed, we were able to get, you know, agreement to where the librarians are gonna go work in the parks. Um, you know, the librarians are going to, you know, mow, mow the grass, you know, and they're going to, you know, keep up the parks and stuff like that and maintain their current library wages and, and stuff like that. And so they're going to continue working through the pandemic in a way that doesn't put their health and safety or the health and safety of the uh, public at risk. Um, aside from that, you know, we've seen uh, many workers score historic pay increases, uh, historic bonuses, um, uh, uh, and historic wins in terms of healthcare benefits um, and stuff like that. And so um, basically what I say is that, you know, the, the pandemic or no pandemic, uh, the, the, the a union uh, really changes the life of a working person because 
most of us, we've had jobs that weren't union before. And the experience there is you get hired, you come in, um, you know, on your orientation day, uh, your, uh, the boss drops an employee handbook or something, employee manual uh, in front of you, says these are the rules. And at any given time, those rules are pretty much arbitrary. At any given time, the boss can change those rules. Uh, and, uh, and whether you've broken any of those rules or not, for the most part, you can be fired uh, for, you know, whatever the boss um, makes up. Uh, or if the boss is just having a bad day or if decides it'd be more profitable to fire everybody and start over or something like that. Um, with a union, none of that is the experience. Uh, rather than having an employee handbook uh, dropped in front of you, you meet with your fellow workers and you come to a negotiating table with your boss and you negotiate a union contract, which is legally binding and can't be changed uh, by either party unilaterally and can't be changed without a negotiation. Uh, and so uh, instead of, oh, you can be fired because be careful, the boss is having a bad day. You can be fired because the boss is having a bad day. Instead of that, um, there's very specific instances uh, that where you can be disciplined at all. Uh, and most union contracts, they follow what's called progressive discipline, which means that a person has to be um, has to be given a warning first, and then they have to be given a written warning, and then they have to be suspended with pay and then suspended without pay and stuff like this, except for like horrible offenses, uh, examples of racism, misogyny and abuse and things like this. Uh, minor offenses, they go through this progressive discipline process. Uh, aside from that, I want to talk about the uh, 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 how uh, significant union contracts are in regards to our struggle against racism and patriarchy. Uh, in South Dakota, uh, the only place where you'll find equal pay uh, for equal work across the gender spectrum uh, is in a union contract. Everywhere else, uh, cisgender men are paid much more uh, than uh, anyone else, than any other uh, uh, worker on the gender spectrum is paid for doing the exact same amount of work. Uh, and white workers are paid uh, at a much higher rate than uh, uh, workers of color. Uh, but in a union contract, the very first thing that is negotiated is equal pay for equal work. Uh, you're going to be uh, paid the same for the same amount of work, regardless of your color, regardless of your sexual orientation, regardless of where you sit on the gender spectrum, uh, uh, regardless of any of that. Um, and in fact, in South Dakota, uh, non uh, 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 non-men uh, in unions are paid 30% more than non-union men uh, in South Dakota. And so white cisgender men are paid 30, uh, that, that aren't in a union are paid 30% less than union women are for doing the same amount of work uh, or union trans women or union trans men or union non-binary folks. Those folks are paid 30% more than white cisgender men are uh, um, uh, because just because they have a union. Um, and so uh, that's very important for the, the struggle against racism and patriarchy. And it's, it gives folks an avenue to fight those things uh, in the workplace. Uh, because we know that we know that all working class people in this country are exploited. We know that. Uh, and so we know the cisgender white men are heavily exploited because they're workers. Uh, but we also know that uh, exploitation uh, um, comes in waves. Uh, and 
so um, for example, an indigenous woman uh, in South Dakota is exploited three times more uh, than a white cisgender man. Uh, she's exploited once for being a worker as is this, this, this white man, but uh, then she's exploited again uh, for being indigenous in a white supremacist uh, society. And then she experiences another wave of exploitation uh, for not being a man in a patriarchal society. Uh, and so a, a, a union and having workers organize gives folks the ability to fight at the at the most local localized level against uh, the um, the institutions of racism and patriarchy, and allows allows them to uh, uh, kind of uh, um, uh, uh, knock away uh, and beat back. Uh, those systems and at least how they present themselves uh, in the workplace and at their at their localized level. So um, we talked about how people in truth, uh, union organizing is a pretty straightforward process. Um, of course, there are ways that um, businesses can um, retaliate against workers currently. And we're curious uh, with legislation like the PRO Act, how would that support union organizers um, from that like a uh, threat of uh, business retaliation and other concerns like that that keep people from organizing um, for a union. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the most important thing the, the PRO Act would do is, is it would uh, uh, outlaw right to work states. And so uh, states would not be able to pass so-called right to work laws. Uh, right to work laws were, were are one of the last remnant, you know, Jim Crow pieces of legislation uh, that was used to break racial solidarity amongst the labor movement and the working class. Um, and they, uh, those, those right to work laws, you know, basically say that, you know, uh, you don't have to uh, be part of or join or contribute to your union, uh, but your union has to do all the work to represent you. Um, and so it gives a window uh, where uh, bosses can subvert uh, the power and the authority of the, uh, uh, of the union um, and eventually bankrupt the um, and so it would uh, outlaw uh, the the product would outlaw these right to work states, which is uh, which would be a, a game changer. Um, a, a, another thing is, you know, um, it would allow it, it legalizes a lot of. Uh, um, solidarity actions that workers can take. You know, workers can uh, strike against not only uh, their employer, but they'd be able to strike against their employer's supporters, right? And so uh, the uh, workers' movement would would uh, would be able to de facto impose sanctions on an anti-union employer um, because they'd be able to strike and boycott against the other businesses that support their employer. Um, right now, that's called a secondary uh, a boycott. It's called a sympathy strike. And those things are not um, permitted under the law. Um, and so um, the PRO Act opening the doors to uh, unions, making it easier for unions to organize, making it harder for states to retaliate, uh, making it easier for unions to stand in solidarity with each other, uh, and making it harder for businesses to retaliate uh, would, would create a whole new labor climate. Right. And that's not the be all and end all. Right. Uh, you know, the workers with the PRO Act passed, uh, workers will still face heavy and historic levels of exploitation. Workers will still have to do a lot of the organizing themselves, and it will uh, still be necessary for workers uh, to demand control over the political and economic system in this country. Uh, however, the PRO Act would give a bit of breathing room uh, for workers to be able uh, uh, to be a little more successful at organizing and be a little more creative. All right, this is all um, very exciting, I guess, you know, uh, 
you know, after so many years of unions, I guess, in decline almost, um, to see them on the upswing again is, is it's uplifting, you know. Um, so I guess as a final thought, um, I'm sure people out there are curious, you know, outside of organizing their own workplaces, um, are there any um, immediate campaigns they may be able to assist or amplify or uh, resources they can turn to um, while, you know, trying to uh, unionize to, uh, I guess, better, uh, better achieve their aims? You know? Any of your yeah. recommendations of uh, like, action items or books to read while you're on the journey of organizing your workplace. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anything by uh, William Z. Foster, uh, Women Racing Class by Angela Davis. Um, she talks, spends a lot of time on labor organizing. Um, and really, you know, uh, really the knowledge you need is in your community at the end of the day, you know, and, and, and with your fellow workers uh, and stuff like that, you know, the best thing you can do is, is talk to your fellow workers, talk to the people in your community, your fellow students, whoever it is, there's a lot of things you can do to be involved. You can, uh, you know, but, you know, I'll say, you know, the, the, the task that's in front of us is historic, right? You know, we have, we are facing one of the most devastating systems and empires that has ever been on, on the face of the earth. Uh, and the level of bloodshed, you know, the level of genocide, imperialism, and this is not even taking into account the day-to-day -day experience of many working people uh, in this country. This is a system that you can go and kill a hundred people for this system. And when you get home, you're likely to be left under a bridge to starve to death, uh, to freeze to death, to die of heat stroke in the summer uh, or, or something like that. You're likely to work your whole life for this system. You could work a job for 50, 60 years, uh, but you're not going to be able to live off social security. And so this is a system that is very happy to let you die alone and destitute at the end of your life, no matter how much work you put in uh, to uh, enriching the profits of the system. At the end of the day, they're happy to let you die alone. Um, this is a system that allows one in every four children to go to bed with a hole in their stomach, not knowing where their next meal is going to come from. And, you know, this is one of the most devastating, inhumane uh, systems um, that the world has ever seen. So this is our task in front of us. And the no system like this, and there have been similar systems, but none of those systems have been defeated uh, without two things a strong labor movement and a strong communist party. And you need both of those things uh, to defeat this kind of system. And so the very best thing any working class person can do is join their union or organize a union and join their communist party or organize a branch of theirs. And that is the single most effective thing that, that they can do. And not only is it a thing they can do, but it's a thing we you have to do. It, you have to, you know, we cannot, you know, this, this, the, the system as incompetent as it is, it's not going to fall unless someone hits it. 
And it takes a strong labor movement and a strong communist party to build up and uh, uh, the organized muscle of the working class to be strong enough to hit it and knock it over. Now, if you hit it, it'll fall over, but you have to organize in order to be able to be strong enough to hit it. And it's important for anybody listening out there, if they haven't already, Join your union and be active in your union. Go to the meetings, you know, share your perspective, share your point of view, organize your fellow workers, organize your fellow young workers, organize a young workers caucus or a young workers committee that can exist within your union, uh, that can vie for leadership and move it in the direction it needs to go. And join and organize uh, in your communist party too. Go to your meetings, uh, be active in the commissions, uh, and, you know, help out uh, with, the, with the labor of putting together things like these podcasts and these events and things like that. Uh, it's, it's of critical importance um, because we're at a moment where we have generations that are capable of knocking this damn system down once and for all and rebuilding systems that are based on our own values, the values of working people, uh, which are the values of solidarity, the values of justice, the values of respect and equality, the values of security, you know, we're, we have those values. Those are not the values of the people in charge right now. If those are the values of the people in charge right now, then we would have those things. What we have is a reflection of the values of the ruling class. And no matter what they say their values are, look at our conditions. And those values are reflected in our conditions. And our conditions are conditions where we're in precarious situations. If we lose our job, we're homeless. Most of us, if we lose our job, we're homeless. We're working out of our car, you know, or, or something like that. We lose everything. And that's the value of the ruling class. And we're in a situation where we have the, 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 the education, we have damn near all the world's literary knowledge in the palm of our hand at any given moment. Uh, and you know we have the ability to come together and organize, but the very most important thing folks need to do is organize and build the communist party and organize and build the labor movement. And everyone that's listening can do that. Thank you so much, Cooper. Um, I really appreciate you joining on with us today. Um, this is my first uh, time on the podcast as a co-host, and this has just been incredible listening to you talk and hearing your insight on all these issues. Absolutely, and and thank you for the work you do with AFL-CIO. I mean, it's just it's so important right now. It it it's what will change the world when it comes down to it. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for both of you for all the work and labor you put in, you know, not only in your in your daily lives, uh, but in the work and labor you put into putting this podcast together so other folks can listen to these conversations and really be a part of it. You know, I want to to you two and to and to, to, to both of you and to, to everyone else, you know, uh, folks can get uh, can feel isolated and alienated and alone. Uh, a lot of times. And I'm sure you two feel it. And a lot of people who kind of have a leftward political ideas, you know, they're, they feel alienated and alone uh, a lot of times in this system. And that's by design. The system wants you to feel alienated and they want you to feel alone. They want you to feel like you're crazy. Uh, they want you to feel like what you want is, is unrealistic and impractical and will never come to pass. But in context, you two, the two of you and everyone listening here are part of a historic and global movement that hundreds of millions of people are a part of. 
There's hundreds and millions of working class people that are coming together and every single day they're trying to do something to build a world uh, based off the solidarity and justice and peace and things that the working class uh, see as important. They're trying to build a world towards unity. And you folks, Tim and M and, and all, all the other folks listening, you're not alone. You're part of a historic global struggle. And you have hundreds of millions of people in China and Laos and Vietnam and Cuba here in, here in the United States and Mexico and Canada. You have friends and comrades and family in every workplace and damn near every country all around the world. And you're the majority. You're the majority. You have the people. You have the numbers. You know that Boots Riley said they've got. Uh, we've got hella people, but they've got helicopters. Those helicopters don't mean nothing when you've got hella people, and we've got them. You know, like the 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 guy in the portrait behind me, Fred Hampton said, "Wherever there's people, there's power." Uh, and and there's people all around you, and there's people all around the world who are ready to build power for people like us, like you, for the working class. And so. Don't don't allow the system uh, to uh, uh, alienate and isolate you because the reality is you are more unified. We are more unified as a class than we've ever been uh, in the history of the world. Uh, and that uh, uh, will we'll just continue to become more and more unified as time goes on. All right. Thank you so much, Cooper.